You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Luke chapter 24. You'll notice that our reading is the verses immediately following our text, and our text immediately follows our reading, and so we get things in the right order. We'll begin with our text, Luke 24, verse 13, and continue reading after it until verse 49. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were it not our hearts burning within us? Well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking he was a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful day today. It's beautiful weather today. It's a beautiful day to come together, worship God, remember the significance of the resurrection from the dead. It's a day in which you experience a lot of joy. A lot of joy as the realities of the gospel are are right front and center before you. Right there to be believed in and to experience the joy that comes from believing in them. But the question is, how are you going to live in this joy? How are you going to continue to live in this joy of the resurrection? So that it characterizes your life not only today, but also tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. It's a beautiful day outside. It's easy to enjoy the sunshine. It gets a lot harder to do that when the clouds come and the rains come and the weather turns as it probably will before we meet summer full on. And so it's kind of the same for us on this day. Perhaps for you seven at the front, it's like that for you as well on a day like today. It's a day that's easy to be full of joy. But how are you and how are we all going to continue to live in that joy every day of our lives? Now, you know the joy that we experience, that we rejoice in today, the joy of belonging to Jesus Christ, the joy of knowing that you are his, that his resurrection was for you. You know, the joy of of knowing Christ himself. It's a large and expansive kind of joy. The life of a Christian is one of figuring out more and more what that joy is like, all the different aspects of it and how it, it, it impacts every area of your life. Well, this chapter in Luke 24, which speaks about the resurrection, is a chapter which speaks about joy. Everyone who comes face to face with the reality of the resurrection and the resurrected Christ, they leave full of joy. And so we're going to look at this chapter with that question in mind. How are we going to live in light of the joy of the resurrection? How are we going to live in that joy? How are we going to walk in that joy every day of our lives? We do that by walking in the way of God. Our theme this afternoon, the way of God for those who believe in Him. The way of God, you might say, for those who will have joy in Him. And we'll consider three parts to this. It's not listed in your liturgy sheet, so you may want to pay close attention. Three parts. We'll first consider the sadness. The sadness, so that's the opposite of joy. The sadness of the two men on the road to Emmaus. And then we'll consider the rebuke of Jesus. Not particularly, we might think, the way to get to joy, but we'll consider that. And third, 
Finally, we'll consider the revelation of Jesus. As Jesus reveals himself. And that ultimately is what gives way to joy for these two disciples on the way to Emmaus. So first of all, the sadness of the two men on the road to Emmaus. Now, when we think of joy, we think of, of an experience, don't we? A, an emotional experience. When we think of joy, it's something you feel in your stomach or you feel in your, your heart or, or throughout your body, maybe. As Christians, it can happen that we're, we're spending a lot of time looking for a particular experience of joy. Particular experience of joy in our lives and, and the desire can be, well, I just want to keep that experience alive as much as possible. That experience of joy, that certain feeling in my stomach or my heart or my mind or my fingertips or wherever it comes out. It seems, in fact, you might say that people, a lot of people are looking for a road experience. Maybe you've talked to people, heard people talk about a road experience. The Damascus road experience must have been a pretty amazing experience for Paul. And you've got the Emmaus Road experience that these two disciples have. Experience of something amazing happening in your life. But right at the outset, we need to take fair warning to be careful about road experiences. Be careful about road experiences. If you're looking for a Damascus Road experiences, be careful because that, that experience of Paul on the road to Damascus struck him down to the ground. He went blind for several days, and it so changed his whole life that the rest of it became, as he explains in 2 Corinthians, a life of suffering, persecution, hardship, beatings, ultimately death. That was the result of the Damascus Road experience. And in front of us as well, the Emmaus Road experience, it's not given to us as as something that's the example for every Christian to follow. In fact, there's a lot that happens on this road to Emmaus that we ought not to follow. These disciples are are dejected and sad. They're they're sad about what they have what they have <clears throat> experienced and what they fail to understand. They're rebuked by Jesus, and they take a long time to recognize the man, Jesus himself, who's with them on the road, even in their home and, and eating with them. Well, the whole experience of the Emmaus Road or the Damascus Road or any road for that matter is not meant to be determinative for us. It's not meant to be the road that we have to walk. The Lord has laid out our paths. Each one of us here, the Lord has laid out our paths, different paths. No one particular road that we will all walk. You have come here, you seven at the front. You've come here through different roads. And we need to acknowledge that. But yet for all of us here today, this experience of the road by these two men, as it's recounted by Luke, is valuable for us. It's useful for us, along with all of Scripture. All Scripture is useful, and this is as well. The Holy Spirit is teaching us through this experience. He's leading us. He's correcting us. He's encouraging us. And he's teaching us the answer to the question, how are you going to live by joy in the resurrection. The way not to live in that joy is to not understand or believe what has happened. That much is clear. 
The way not to live in that joy is to not understand and not believe what's happened. These disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's what they were experiencing. They, they, they didn't believe, they didn't understand what had happened in the resurrection. And so they weren't filled with joy, they were sad and dejected. Now we don't really know too much about the, the logistics of this journey. We know it was seven miles from Jerusalem. Scholars aren't sure where Emmaus was at that time. We also don't know much about these two men. We only know one of their names, Cleopas. Don't know too much about him. And the other isn't even identified for us. But yet we have these two men on the road. And these two men have obviously been in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And they're all too aware, as you can see by their sadness, of the events that have taken place there. They seem to be in the same state that the women were when they came to the tomb and they they saw the tomb open and they saw the tomb empty and they were confused. They didn't know what this meant. And in fact, for these men, not knowing what this means, means they're sad and they're dejected. So they're talking on the road to Emmaus about these things, trying to make some sense of what's gone on here. And as they're walking along, the most amazing thing happens. Jesus comes alongside them and walks with them. Most amazing thing, the risen Lord himself comes beside and walks with them, but they don't become filled with joy right away. They continue to be sad. It doesn't fill them with joy because we read in verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. He came and walked along with them, but they didn't even know it. Luke doesn't explain why. It seems, from putting all the accounts together, that something about the appearance of the Lord Jesus was different after his resurrection. But it could also be that what Luke is saying here is that God kept them from being able to understand, to recognize Jesus. God has his own purposes for doing his things. And perhaps God is keeping them from recognizing him so that ultimately they may be able to figure it out. Either way, they don't recognize Jesus as he asks them what they're discussing. Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And the men, they almost seem incredulous at the answer. Uh, How can you not know what we're talking about? They, They... they can't even keep walking as they answer. They're, they're sad, they're perplexed, and they stop and they say, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? In other words, where have you been this whole time? Jesus of Nazareth, the, this great rabbi who's been preaching and healing, coming from Galilee, coming down, this great entrance into the city of God, Jerusalem. He was known throughout the land. He was the talk of the city at Passover. He's been put to death. On a Roman cross of crucifixion. How can you not know what's going on? Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? The Lord Jesus continues to act as though he doesn't know. And he asks for more details. What things have happened in Jerusalem? Well, they're sad, these men say. They're perplexed because of Jesus of Nazareth. 
He was a prophet, they say, a, a great prophet, powerful in word and deed. Those same words are used in Acts 7 in speaking about Moses. And so it seems that the men thought of Jesus as a prophet like Moses. Now Moses, in the minds of the first century Jews, was the most important person to ever walk on the face of the earth. Moses was the ultimate Old Testament saint, the ultimate prophet, the first prophet, the one who had given the law, the servant of God, Moses. These men are saying, there was a man among us who was like Moses. Of course, these men will come to realize that their comparison with Moses does not do justice to the person of Jesus. But still, they have a great respect. They've been extremely impressed by what Jesus has done among them. In fact, these disciples even hoped that Jesus would overthrow the Romans. They wanted a Redeemer to rescue them from the Romans. You can imagine that these men were probably among that crowd that was swept up and proclaiming Jesus as the King as He rode into Jerusalem mere days before, as He made that famous journey into the city. But instead of, of rising to power, instead of marching to the temple or, or marching to the palace and taking his place on the throne as the king over Jerusalem and over all of Israel, the great prophet had been overcome. He'd been arrested. He'd been tried. He'd been sentenced to death. He'd been marched out to Golgotha. He'd been hung up on a cross, put to death, buried in a grave. The revolution had fizzled. It's amazing if you see here, if you look at the language that the men use in describing what has happened to Jesus, it's almost exactly what the Lord Jesus himself, when he prophesied about what was going to happen to him, said. These men are basically taking Jesus' words on their lips in order to describe what happened, but yet they don't see the connection between what Jesus had told them what what was going to happen and what actually happened. Truly, they are being blinded at this point. And they're blinded, in fact, by their own desires. They're blinded by their own purposes. They had this purpose in mind for Jesus, that he would become this great redeemer who would rescue them from the Romans. But when he was put to death, and their purposes stopped. No leader who's going to rescue us from the Romans can die. They had their purposes in mind. It seems everything that they heard from Jesus had to fit with those purposes. The things that didn't fit with their purposes, they just didn't hear. So that when Jesus' words were fulfilled right before their eyes, they didn't understand what was going on. And that's what makes them sad. Their purposes have been shot through by these latest events. And this is all the more clear as they confess that they've heard reports of the resurrection. They know that Jesus has risen. They've heard the reports. They tell them to Jesus on the road. But yet they still can't accept it. Their hearts desired one thing. And, and another thing has happened. They haven't submitted their hearts 
to the word of God yet. They're stuck with their own expectations and hopes. And nothing seems to be able to break through. Not the words of Jesus. Not the testimony of the women. Nothing can bring them joy. Because they can't understand what it all means. But Jesus is now with them. And he's come to these men so that they will not remain in their ignorance. But rather, he, the great prophet, though not recognized yet, is still with them. And so we come to the rebuke of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the great prophet. The Jews thought Moses was. He spoke of a prophet that was to come. Jesus came in fulfillment to that prophecy. Now, prophets, you'll know, are busy with applying the word of God. That's what prophets do. That's what Isaiah did. That's what Jeremiah did. They would take the the words of God, those ancient words, and they would apply them to the lives of the people living in their times. They would apply them to the lives of their contemporaries. They would say, this is what God's word says. This is what you're doing. Let's see how they compare. Oftentimes that turned into a rebuke as the lives of the people did not measure with God's commands. And so too, the prophet Jesus, except he's a different kind of prophet altogether, because as he brings the word of God to bear on these two men on the road to Emmaus, he's not bringing some some outside document to bear on their lives. No, he's bringing himself to bear on their lives. He is the word of God. And so what these men need to understand is him and how all of scripture points to him. And so the first part of teaching these disciples is to rebuke them, to rebuke them. Now, there's certainly a time for everything. As the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, there's a there's a time to be gentle. As in the, the touching appearance of the Lord with Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John. He says her name. He's he's gentle with her in her unbelief as she's coming to realize who he is. But there's also a time for for calling disciples out and pointing to them that they're being rather foolish in the way that they're acting. As children of God, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, you learn to appreciate these moments in your life, these times of rebuke. There are times when the Lord, through his word and spirit, will speak to you. He'll bring his word to bear on your life, and it will feel like he's deliberately hurting you. He'll bring his word to bear in your life and you will not like the sounds of it. It will hurt you. He will come and he will say what is going on to you as he brings his word to bear. It will feel like he's deliberately hurting you. Learn to appreciate those times. And remember who's speaking. Remember that when the word of God rebukes you, when Jesus speaks to you and it hurts, it feels uncomfortable, you want to run away, know that this is good for you. This is what you need. It's just like going for an operation. The surgeon pulls out his scalpel, starts to go to work. On that operating table, if you don't have enough anesthetic especially, is the last place where you'll want to be. It hurts. You want to flee away. But as the surgeon uses that scalpel, effectively, he's doing the very best thing for you. 
So the Lord Jesus applies his scalpel to these disciples. And his rebuke is not a mere rebuke. So he says to the men, as he speaks with them, he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the word that the prophets have spoken. He rebukes them. But the thing to realize about this rebuke is that he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, you guys are foolish and slow of heart and see you later. No, he begins with a rebuke. But then he brings more. You offer just a mere rebuke. You're foolish. You're slow of heart. See you later. If you want to hurt someone, if you want to destroy someone, if you want to bring them down, that's how you can do it. You offer them a rebuke and then nothing else. But Jesus is not out to destroy these disciples. He's out to restore them. He's out to bring them from sadness to joy. And noting how foolish and slow of heart they are in their disbelief, he begins to restore. So first he rebukes them. And then he corrects them. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? First the rebuke, then the correction. This was supposed to happen. This is what God had had said was going to happen according to scripture. And then he, the great prophet, teaches them. You're starting to notice the pattern here. He rebukes them, corrects them, teaches them. Our home visit theme for this year is 2 Timothy 3. The word of God is effective. It's useful for rebuking, correcting, teaching, and of course training in righteousness as the rest of these lives of disciples where will bear out. Jesus applies the word of God to them. He teaches them. He opens up the word of God and he explains from all of scripture how everything that has happened is precisely what the word of God taught from the very beginning. The Jews were living with a certain hope, and it was a hope that had had no idea of a Messiah who would suffer and die and rise again. But as the apostles were so able to make clear as they began to preach the gospel through the book of Acts, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, that this, everything that's happened, that Christ suffered, died, and then rose from the dead, is precisely what the scriptures teach. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 30, Psalm 118, Isaiah 53, many, many other passages, the book of Jonah, they all make it clear that this was to happen according to the word of God. Now, the Lord has not yet revealed himself in person to these disciples. He's not yet brought them from that sadness to that joy, but you can probably see where this is going, can't you? The disciples were filled with sadness and misunderstanding. And so Jesus comes along and to help their situation. And how does he do that? By rebuking, by correcting, by teaching, by bringing the word of God to bear on their lives, by bringing the word of God to them. The Bible is the authority, authoritative and trustworthy word of God. It's breathed out by God himself and it's sufficient. It's all you need to teach you everything that you need for salvation and for a life of godliness. For you in the front here, 
This is how the Lord has taught you thus far. And this is how he will continue to lead you on. Rebuking, correcting, teaching, training in righteousness through his word. Stay close to God's word. This is where Jesus Christ himself will teach you and guide you. It's where he gives everything that you need as you move from sadness to joy. As you live a life of faith and service before him. As the Apostle Paul lays out these qualities of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, he's doing it in the context of Timothy's task, which is to bring the Word of God, which is to preach. The preaching of the Word of God is also where Jesus, as the, as the Word is preached to you week after week, it is where Jesus will speak, rebuking, correcting, teaching, training in righteousness. Stay close to the preaching. Of God's word. Attend yourself to it. And Jesus Christ will lift you up. And hold you. In the joy. Of the resurrection. Later these disciples will say. How our hearts burned within us. This is the experience. Of receiving the word. The word about Jesus. That's the experience of hearing the voice. Of Jesus. Your heart burns. Within you. For those who have ears to hear, it penetrates, it moves, and it stirs their hearts. Such was the beginning of the effect of the rebuke of Jesus. Finally, we come to the revelation of Jesus. Now, as we come to the joy that will be expressed, notice the character of this joy. Notice where it comes from. Notice, in fact, that it doesn't come from within. The disciples speak about a response to the joy. Our hearts burned within us as we heard this. But that's not where the joy comes from. The joy doesn't come from a, a burning heart. We like to, to look inside of ourselves these days, don't we? we? We live in a very introspective culture. We're all about self-diagnosis, looking at ourselves, trying to be the, the psychologist and psychotherapist, self-psychoanalyzing. You watch an episode of something like Dr. Phil on TV. You hear a dose of psychobabble on the radio. You read an article in the magazine and, and suddenly you become an expert in examining yourself and, and treating yourself. Well, I'm a little bit too sad. Maybe I need this or, or how do I find this or how do I gain this in terms of, of going deep inside myself and trying to come to terms with what's going on there. But the Christian joy Joy the resurrection doesn't come so much from self-reflection, although that certainly is needed. But that's not what brings us our joy. That's not the source of our joy. It doesn't come from self-reflection. It comes from Jesus' reflection. It comes not so much from knowing ourselves. It comes from looking outside of ourselves and looking to Jesus Christ. He's the source of our joy. And so the Lord ultimately pulls these disciples out of their gloom by fellowshipping with them and revealing himself to them. And this is the way that it is for us. That's the way it is, and it always will be for us. It's not that you're always going to have this disoriented kind of confusion about the resurrection that settles on your life, although that may come. You may be confused about the resurrection, and, and that may be the source of your sadness. You may experience a sudden apathy in your life of faith. You may experience a, a slow-moving boredom 
as going through the motions of Christianity just seems to be boring as you do it for years and years and years. Perhaps the danger will come to you from an exhilarating brush with temptation where, where suddenly you seem alive, but it's not for the right reasons. You may be confused about who God is and how he works out his plan. You may be confused about the doctrine of the Trinity, about creation, about the deity of Christ. These things can trouble your soul. It may be sorrow or sickness or the presence of death that shakes your confidence and leaves you perplexed like these disciples. It's not always the same struggle that you'll go through. But the solution will always be the same. The solution is he who has risen from the dead. He who reveals himself to you by his word, with his Holy Spirit. He's the living one. He's the present one. He's the faithful one. He's the solution. As he reveals himself to you in his word through the work of his spirit, then you will be empowered and stimulated to live in the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, when you see Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and understand him, placing your trust in him, then it doesn't matter what else is going on, where those perplexities are coming from, what's striking you at any moment, you can have the joy of the resurrection because he has risen. He has risen indeed. And ultimately, this is what's happened. This is what happens to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're concerned that Jesus isn't going to stay with them, and so they urge him to stay, and he does. His teaching on the road, it seems, established him as a notable person. Perhaps these men are already beginning to think, wow, this, this man's almost uh, like a prophet. And so much so is he in charge that as they invite him in for a meal, he actually takes charge at the meal. He's... He's the most notable person there. He takes charge at the meal. And in a, scene, in a scene that's not the same, but very reminiscent of the Lord's Supper, Jesus breaks bread with these disciples. The point is not that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper here. The point is that Jesus is sharing fellowship with them. Yes, he went in with them, but then he takes charge. He becomes the host and he extends fellowship to these disciples. And as host, he thanks God for the provision of bread and then he distributes it. And then only then, as he reaches out to these disciples and shares fellowship with them, then their eyes are opened and they can understand and it dawns on them who it is that is here with them. They recognize Jesus, but only momentarily before he disappears from their sight. In his resurrection body, Jesus is not constrained to the same physical and temporal reality that we are. Seems he simply steps beyond their senses and he's gone. And now the disciples are moved. Now they're moved. They've received the scriptures. They've learned the message about Jesus. They've enjoyed fellowship with Jesus. And now they've seen the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now certainly, this is not the way that Jesus always reveals himself. But what always happens for that joy is that Jesus does reveal himself. He does it through his scriptures. He does it through his word. He does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now they see him. Their sight is immediately connected to the teachings. Immediately their reaction to seeing him is 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures for us? They see Jesus and they connect it with his word right away. That's how Jesus was revealed to them, through his word. This is the way that it will be moving forward as well. At the end of the book, Jesus tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem because although he's leaving, he's going to send his spirit to empower them to teach and to teach them. He's going to send his spirit, in other words, to make clear the scriptures for them so that they can live by them and so that they can proclaim these scriptures to Jew and Gentile and calling others to believe in Jesus. It is the word of God that will be used by the church. No, it is the word of God that will be used by Jesus to show himself within the church and in the world. So following this fellowship with Jesus, they join the fellowship of the disciples who are also moved to joy because Jesus has revealed himself to Peter. The source of their joy is the risen Lord himself. The source of the joy of the resurrection is the risen Lord himself. And the result of that joy is that you experience fellowship with others. You experience fellowship in so many ways, including at the table of the Lord. Some of you, some of you have known that joy from infancy. And some of you, and some of you have come to that joy later in life. But moving forward in the certainty and the joy of the resurrection that comes from faith in the Lord of the resurrection, we can share in that joy all together. Because we have one Lord, and he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.